The birth of Isaac. The Lord kept his word and did for Sarah exactly what he had promised. She became pregnant and she gave birth to a son for Abraham in his old age. This happened at just the time God had said it would. And Abraham named their son Isaac. Eight days after Isaac was born, Abraham circumcised him as God had commanded. Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born. And Sarah declared, God has brought me laughter. All who hear about this will laugh with me. Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse a baby? Yet I have given Abraham a son in his old age. Hagar and Ishmael are sent away. When Isaac grew up and was about to be weaned, Abraham prepared a huge feast to celebrate the occasion. But Sarah saw Ishmael, the son of Abraham, and her Egyptian servant Hagar, making fun of her son Isaac. So she turned to Abraham and demanded, Get rid of that slave woman and her son. He is not going to share the inheritance with my son Isaac. I won't have it. This upset Abraham very much because Ishmael was his son. But God told Abraham, do not be upset over the boy and your servant. Do whatever Sarah tells you, for Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. But I will also make a nation of the descendants of Hagar's son, because he is your son too. So Abraham got up early the next morning, prepared food and a container of water, and strapped them on Hagar's shoulders. Then he sent her away with their son, and she wandered aimlessly in the wilderness of Bathsheba. When the water was gone, she put the boy in the shade of a bush. Then she went and sat down by herself a hundred yards away. I don't want to watch the boy die, she said as she burst into tears. But God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven. Hagar, what's wrong? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Go to him and comfort him, for I will make a great nation from his descendants. Then God opened Hagar's eyes, and she saw a well full of water. She quickly filled her water container and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy as he grew up in the wilderness. He became a skillful archer, and he settled in the wilderness of Paran. His mother arranged for him to marry a woman from the land of Egypt. Thank you. Abby, you can take the microphone. Sorry, we missed the, missed the last bit there. Yeah, give her a clap. You know what? Abby has a son named Isaac. She wasn't 90 years old when she uh, gave birth to that son, so I'm sure she's happy about that. But uh, we've learned over the weeks that Isaac means uh, he laughs, which is uh, an interesting name. Ishmael means God hears, and we'll hear a little bit about that today. But we've been following through the story of Abraham. I've encouraged you every week as we've done this uh, to actually read the scripture yourself during the week and to pray over it and uh, to spend some time with God because um, going through uh, a story like this in the Bible is really powerful because it gives you much more of an insight to God and the Bible and the lessons the Bible can teach us when you read in chunks and when you read things together and when you read it over and over and over. So it's been great for me because I've probably read it more than anyone here the last few months. I've read over and over and over and over this story and uh, it's just so powerful as God. There's greater uh, treasure and, and, and gems to be found in the Bible when you read over and over and over. So we've got through, if you're new today, this is uh, how far we're into the series, six, six sessions in. And tomorrow, uh, next week, sorry, not tomorrow, next week will be our last uh, session in this series where we talk about uh, Abraham sacrificing Isaac. God asked Abraham to put Isaac on the altar and uh, sacrifice him. So we'll talk about that 
next week. But we started off with the detachment test and uh, Abraham having to leave his uh, family, essentially, to follow the call of God. And um, then the belief test, the wall test, honor test, the fulfillment test. And then the separation test today, it's a little bit similar to that initial detachment test. We're going to talk a bit about family, friends, uh, even your old life habits and separating from them today as we talk about uh, the separation test. And this is a critical test in our faith journeys. You're following Jesus uh, or you're wanting to follow Jesus, or you're wanting to go deeper in your walk with God. There's going to be separation along the way. Uh, it's, it's inevitable. Uh, and it's also necessary. We're going to see today that separating from certain things, certain people, certain old ways uh, is actually necessary in order for your faith to be built on God and to grow. Because if you never separated from anything, then your faith would continually be in the things of this world, where God wants your faith, your trust, your hope to be in him. So therefore, there's a requirement of separation. As I prepare these sermons every week, I obviously have to look at my own life. And that's one of the downsides of being a preacher, uh, a good preacher. You shouldn't get up and ever just talk information and share information. Uh, you've got to look at your own life. And as I prayed about this this week and, and just reflected on my own life, I just realized that my entire life, so from a, a child, because I've always grown up in church, uh, my entire life, my entire faith journey has been full of separation, full of separation. So uh, in this church, literally the church we're now, I've been in this church since I was five years old, apart from trips overseas and stuff um, when I was younger, some chunks of time overseas. But my I, and I just realized, even in worship today, I realized my entire immediate family has been in this church at different points of time. Uh, all of my best friends growing up and in my young adult years attended this church at some point in time. And all of my main mentors uh, who've spoken to my life as a child, uh, as a teenager, when I was in those early formation years, teenager into young adult, all of those mentors were predominantly uh, in this church and attended this church. Most of them are not here anymore, and that's fine. They're not here for different reasons and whatever, but there's been many, many separations along the way. I had three different couples that were my youth leaders when I was 13, 14, 15. All of those couples have backslidden and are divorced now. That was my mentors during my teenage years, and that's sad and that happens. And, uh, but that was a challenge, and I had to deal with that as a teenager, thinking about, do I follow Jesus? Is God real? Do I believe in him? And then you've got mentors who are not only backsliding, but divorcing and falling away, and that creates a huge challenge when you're, when you're a teenager. My best friends were in this church growing up, and uh, it was great. Isn't it great having friends in the church? You have friends in the church now. You might have best friends in the church. You might have family in the church. You might not. You might, like me, have had them here at different times. But there always comes along the journey a separation. And we didn't get to talk about Abraham and Lot uh, during this series, but that is a famous story of separation. Abraham leaves his father, Terah, but he takes his nephew, Lot. And then eventually Lot gets so wealthy... And Abraham gets so wealthy that they need to separate their families. And it's that story that you may know where Abraham says to his nephew, well, you choose, you choose first. You, you choose. Have a look at the land. Where do you want to graze your sheep? Where do you want to set up your home? Where do you want to live? And Lot chooses the green. He chooses the fertile. He chooses the best. And Abraham takes the leftovers. And there's a separation. But then they come back together later on as well as Abraham helps 
to rescue Lot from uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and, or helps uh, rescue him from uh, a couple of times actually. So the journey of faith, if you want to follow God and you want to put your trust in him, not in yourself but in him, uh, it's going to require separation along the way. Separation from old things in your life, separation from people in your life and those people are going to be family and those people are going to be friends. A great scripture that, that I hadn't read for years, maybe a decade, came back to, back to me as I was preparing this week, and you'll see it on the screen there, Amos 3.3. 3. Can two people walk together without agreeing on the destination? This is the separation test. You cannot walk with people. And I'm not saying here that God separates families and he wants you to hate your brother or he wants you to break relationship with your friends. I'm not talking about that at all, of course, because that is not the Christian way and not the godly way. But there will be a separation of sorts. There will be a dividing of sorts. There might be a dividing of allegiance in your family. You may have been through that before. There may be a dividing around a theological issue. You may have been that around that before. There might be a lot of my friendships when I was a young adult, a lot of the dividing was, well, I just really wanted to follow Jesus and I believed in it. And they wanted to do other stuff and not follow Jesus or fake following Jesus. And it's just, I didn't push them away. I didn't say I'm not going to be your friend. They didn't hate me or anything. But it was like we weren't agreeing on the destination. So then how could we really journey together along the way? But separation of relationships is painful. Who agrees with me there? Whether it's right or wrong, whether it's godly or not, it's not easy. It's really, really difficult. But unless the destination, heaven, Jesus, Christ-likeness, growing up in my faith, being committed to a church family, living according to the Bible. If that's not the destination of your friend or with your husband or wife or with your kids, then it makes it very difficult to journey along the faith journey. Now, as I'm saying, I'm not saying get rid of people or break relationships. I'm just saying, who are the people who you are with and are with you on the faith journey, the journey of becoming more like Jesus. So the separation test, here's a little definition for you. Our faith in God is tested as separation occurs from our old life to how we used to live or we're living now but we need to separate from that because God wants to grow us. Our old life, our family and our friends throughout the faith journey. This can be difficult separation. Sometimes separation occurs for very normal reasons. People move into state for work. There's just a geographical separation. We live in a world now that is very transient. People can, we've seen during COVID, people can just work from home so they can move to Queensland and keep their job. Uh, people, it's very easy to move. We're very wealthy as Australians. So to sell a house and move to another house uh, in another state is not very difficult. Go back 100 years ago, most people never left the street that they lived in. The church was at the end, the school was at the end, the general store was there, and they, no one really went further than their own street 100 years ago. Now to move countries, to move cities, to move states is nothing. And that can be challenging. When people just move and come and go. Friendships we know are very challenging, especially if there's gossip, especially if there's control, uh, especially if things are difficult uh, in friendships. We get let down in relationships, in family relationships. Families go to a whole new level, don't they? It's not just a, like a friendship. Uh, there's, you know, that is my mother, that is my brother, my blood. And families are difficult, but families get separated over uh, when there's a death, there's a fights over wills, uh, there's horrible things done to the people you love. 
uh, divorce. You may have been divorced. You may have been a child of divorce. That's a, it's a, that's a separation that creates pain and difficulty. It's really, really difficult. Empty nesting is difficult, although it's one of those things in life that's a good thing. You want your kids to grow up. Sometimes you need to give them a bit of a kick out of the nest because they're a bit slow to go. We've got an epidemic of... Um, you know, adults that are still like children and 35 and living at home. Sorry if that's you, I don't mean to offend you, but uh, maybe it's time to go, I don't know. But then there's lots of parents that don't really want their kids to go because it's not a very healthy thing going on there. So they're kind of happy that the 35-year-old is living in the basement playing video games all night. But I don't want to offend you either. That's okay, you do you. It's between you and God. Uh, but that can be difficult. Even good, good separations are hard. Like when someone moves for a job or when your kids get older, you love them, but They've got to move on with their life. They're adults now, and, and that can be a challenge. You know, Jesus constantly fought with this challenge of separation. This test was put to him many, many times. His disciples said to him, we have left everything to follow you. Do you remember that? They said to him, we have left everything. To, we've left our wives. We've left our fishing businesses. We've left our money. We've left our reputation. Everyone thinks we're idiots following you around and all this crazy stuff going on. What about us? And Jesus has to remind them that anyone who's denied themselves, anyone that has left me for, for, for family, for marriage, for jobs, whatever, everything will be paid back to you. Jesus says this statement, and it's a one that I don't like to share much at church or remind you much of church, but you know me, I've got to tell you the truth. So Jesus says, I have come to divide people against each other. This is Luke 12, 51. From now on, families will be split apart. Three in favor of me, so three in favor of Jesus, and two against. Two in favor of me and three against. Jesus hits right at the core of the issue. If you want to follow me, don't you love that about Jesus? It's super painful to hear it, but he just gets down to the reality. The reality is if you're on a journey of faith following me, Jesus says it's going to create problems. Not everyone's going to be like, yeah. Did anyone become a Christian? Maybe you became a Christian as a teenager or as a young adult and your family might, might not have been a Christian family and that was a problem. You know, it's like everyone's like, what are you doing? I remember when I was a youth leader and non-Christian kids would come to youth or they'd become a Christian and their parents found it very difficult that their, their child was going to church. They would have rather their child been taking drugs at nightclubs or sleeping around and being wildly promiscuous because at least I understand that stuff. But going to church and not wanting to have a lot of sex with a lot of young, other young adults and not wanting to go out and party, but wanting to go to church and worship Jesus and become a good person. Parents would struggle with that because it was unfamiliar. And then what happens in families? The control tentacles come out. No, you need to do this. And no, we didn't raise you that way. And it's very difficult. So Jesus helps us by saying, look, let me tell you in advance, if you want to follow me, this might've happened in your marriage. You might be following Jesus and then, man, it brings up an issue. Wife hears from God, husband doesn't, husband feels that this scripture is interpreted that way, wife doesn't, how should we raise our kids in a godly way? Mm, I'm not sure. It can create difficulty. It can create challenge. Jesus comes to divide. Not that he wants to hurt, not that he wants to create division, 
but just naturally the truth of Christ is going to create division because it brings up our insecurities. It brings up the lies we live by. It live, brings up all the falseness in us, in our marriage, in our families, because he is truth, pure truth, and he is the way, and he is life. But not everyone wants that truth, and not everyone wants to live that way, and so that creates challenges for us all. Abraham had his own separation test, a great challenge with his own two sons. Can you imagine? Ishmael and Isaac. So in Genesis 21 verse 1, God keeps his word to Sarah and she has a baby. She has a baby. She's 90. Isaac is 100 and the promise is fulfilled. Remember we spoke about that last week in Genesis 18, the three mysterious visitors come out of nowhere and they say to Abraham and Isaac, you're going to, about this time next year, you're going to have a son. And then the three visitors kind of morph into one. The three all of a sudden become the Lord, Yahweh. And, and when um, Sarai or Sarah, her name has just been changed, laughs, the Lord, Yahweh, says, is anything impossible for the Lord? It doesn't matter that you're 100 or 90. And this is what the entire story of Israel in the Old Testament is built on, that Abraham and Sarah trusted God for a son, even though they were 190. And that's why if you read your New Testament Bible, your New Testament, it will constantly refer to Abraham and his faith. Because Christianity and following Jesus is built on this one simple fact, that Jesus came and died for the sins of the world, and by faith you can receive that free gift. Without faith, you cannot please God. That's Christianity. If you don't believe in him, you cannot please God because you'll believe in your children to keep you happy. You'll believe in your job to keep you happy. You'll believe in your possessions to keep you happy. These things will give you happiness and trust and build faith in natural things. And that cannot please God because it's about putting faith in him. So if we look at this little um, diagram again of the partnership, the progeny, the place... Uh, I want to bring us back here because this is why it was so important that Abraham and Sarah had a son. You may be thinking, why all this obsession with a son? So the partnership there, number one, the blessing of God, the promises of God that was to come upon Abraham, his family, the Israelite people, and then eventually all nations of the earth through Jesus Christ. The evidence of this partnership between God and Abraham, so number one, was number two and three. So God doesn't promise us things that are not physical and real. So the evidence of the partnership was the son, the real son. And not the, remember, not this servant Elysia, not the half-blood son Ishmael, but the full biological Abraham and Sarah's son was the evidence that God was blessing Abraham. But it didn't stop just there with the physical son. It was also the blessing of a place, a land the promised land. So God doesn't just give us, when he fulfills his promises, he doesn't just give us something in reality, a son, a job, a calling, but he also gives us a place to outwork his great blessings. For us as a church, it's Frankston and Casey. This region here is our place. This is our promised land. This is what God has given you. God has given me. This is our job. It's to be the people of God in this area, to outwork everything that God has for us. This is our place and where we outwork these things. <coughs> so I've got to be careful not to inflect my voice today, right? It tickles. 
So I have a cup of tea here. Thank you, Sarah Davis, made me this brilliant cup of tea. My voice crackles and we don't get through today. That's Sarah's fault because this cup of tea is not up to scratch, okay? And remind me, if I start getting a bit shouty, preachy at you, just, just do this, okay? Just pass the cake, okay? Because my voice is going to go. I've got to try and keep it. All right, verse 6. Ishmael mocks Isaac and Sarah declared, God has brought me laughter. Remember that last week? Ha, 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 ha. Initial laughter was, ha, 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 ha. Man, 90 years old, I'm not going to have a baby. Then she gets pregnant as a baby. Ha, 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 ha. It's a laugh of one day. Have you ever done that? I feel like I do that every Sunday in worship. I come into worship here and I worship God along with you and I'm just, ha, 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 God. Here I am again, seven days later. You're just reminding me your greatness your faithfulness, all my stupid little issues, my stresses, my anxieties, but you are so faithful. And I just laugh in wonder at how good God is and how quickly I can forget in seven days. So she laughs and she says, people are going to laugh with me. Not only my laughter is going to be infectious because of this incredible miracle God has done. So Abraham's got this party going on, this huge feast in verse nine. But Sarah looks across the party, okay? Looks across the celebrations, hundreds of people there. And she sees Ishmael. So 13-year-old Ishmael, bratty little teenager. Abraham's son to the slave woman Hagar, so not Sarah's son. Now she's there now with her baby, two years, about two years old. So being weaned, about two years old. She's holding her little boy, cute little boy, chubby cheeks, little toddler. She sees his 13, 14-year-old Ishmael, this bratty little teenager. Not her son, Hagar's son. Remember the enmity between Sarah and Hagar, this kind of fight, this kind of trouble that's been going on, this tension. Everyone's laughing at the miracles of God, laughing with Sarah, laughing at the party, celebrating what God has done. And Ishmael is there laughing too. But his laugh is a mock. And he's looking down on her son, the chosen son, the promised son. He's looking down on him and he's mocking making fun of him, bullying him, treating him with contempt. He's not special to Ishmael. He's just a competitor. He's a rival in the blessings of God. And Ishmael is mocking him, making fun of him, embarrassing him. So this theme of laughing continues. Remember, Isaac, the name means he laughs. The joy of the Lord did this incredible miracle. But now Ishmael is mocking and this becomes a flashpoint after all these years of sarah and hagar this tension as the two the two women in abraham's life it boils over and sarah now has the standing of her own son she's not just the barren wife of abraham anymore and then there's this maidservant hagar who's don't like her very much but at least she can bear children all of a sudden now sarah is on a different standing she has her own child finally god has proven himself. God has come through with his promises. And this is the straw that breaks the camel's back. And Sarah turns to Abraham and says in verse 10, get rid of this slave woman and her son. You can just, you can just feel the anger, the bitterness, the decades of frustration. Get rid of that slave woman. She doesn't even have a name anymore that slave that we picked up in Egypt that time and her dirty 13-year-old son who's not part of our family, he is not going to share in the inheritance with my son. 
I won't have it, she says. She has had enough. And you see Sarah's motive here. Her motive is to protect her son. Because what's on offer here? What's on offer is the covenant with God. Abraham has this covenant with God. It's going to be passed to the next generation. (coughs) It's going to go down a line. Abraham's not going to be here forever. Someone's going to succeed him as the blessed one, the one who would carry it on. Now, Ishmael has become a rival. Ishmael has become somebody who potentially could take that blessing and take the inheritance. So Sarah's motive is to protect the inheritance for her son. The easiest way to protect the inheritance is just get rid of that woman. The mocking, the laughing, she's a slave, she's a nobody. Get her out of our family. The word that's actually used here in the NLT, it sounds a bit soft because it just says get rid of. (coughs) But it's the same word that was actually used in the Garden of Eden when God excommunicated and expelled Adam and Eve from the Garden. Get rid of means drive out. It means expel. It means send into exile, excommunicate, cut them away from the family. So verse 11, Abraham evidently upset. He goes to God and cries out to God. And God says to him, do not be upset over the boy and your servant. Do what Sarah tells you, for Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. A little bit of an odd response from God. So Abraham's gone to God, this can't be right. Expel my son. There's got to be a way to work around this. And God surprisingly says, it's okay. Listen to your wife. Get rid of Hagar. Get rid of Ishmael. It's okay. I'm going to bless your son and I'm going to bless Ishmael as well. Verse 13, but I'll also make of the descendants of Hagar's son... Sorry, also make a nation of the descendants of Hagar's son because he is your son too. Remember we spoke about how God in the faith journey, incredibly, amazingly, God counts for our margin of error. Although Abraham went and had a son via Hagar, God still extends his blessing and says, I'm going to look after him too. So Abraham gets up early the next morning, puts a bag on uh, Hagar's back, Ishmael sets him apart with some food, and sends them off into the wilderness. His own son. His own son. If you've got a 13-year-old son, would you just send him off into nowhere with his mother and trust God, that God knows what he's doing? Interestingly, Abraham, we're going to talk about this next week, is going to be tested again with Isaac. Will he separate from Isaac and put him on the altar and sacrifice him to God. So the same separation test is going to come even for his chosen son next week. When God expels, you have to trust him. When God, this is what we call an expulsion here, an expulsion, a sending away of Ishmael, a separation. It's the same for us. When things are separated in our life, people, events, even our own habits, our own sin, things need to be excommunicated. Very very difficult to trust God in those moments. Very difficult to trust that God knows what he's doing when there's pain, Abraham's upset, you're upset, relationships are falling apart, things, tension is heightened, Sarah and Hagar are at each other, you're in the family, someone's mocked someone at a party, maybe someone got drunk and punched someone else, we've all been at those parties with family members before. Things get tense, there's a crisis in the family. 
and separation occurs. Interestingly, though, this separation was the plan of God. It was necessary that Ishmael was separated so that Isaac could be seen as the blessed son. Separation was necessary to bless the chosen son, Isaac. So this is the partnership that God has with Abraham and Isaac. It can't go to Ishmael. The ultimate partnership, the superior partnership, the partnership that was going to form the Israelite people could only go to the biological son. So therefore, Ishmael had to be separated. Separation has to happen on the faith journey. If it didn't happen, then there'd be no nation of Israel formed and there's no promised land fulfilled. And we actually see this motif all the way through the Genesis story. There's a separation between Jacob and Esau. There's a separation between Jacob's wives, Rachel and Leah. There's a separation of the 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 sons of Israel. Joseph is separated out. The 11th son becomes the chosen son. Jacob is the younger brother out of Jacob and Esau, the twins, and he becomes the chosen one. So there's this, there isn't a pattern in how God does it, but there's always a select son through who the line of God's blessing will flow. And there's always a separation that must occur. So Hagar and Ishmael are off in the desert now. Surely they're in trouble. All the water is gone in verse 15. And Abraham takes her young son, this young man, puts him under a tree and then walks away a hundred yards because she's certain that they're done. They're at the end. There's no water. They're in the desert. It's all over. Then she sits down by herself about a hundred yards away. She doesn't want to watch the boy die and she bursts into tears. So we've gone from a couple of days earlier, everyone's at a party for the weaning of Isaac. A couple of days later, Hagar's in this pickle again. Remember Genesis 16 when she's pregnant with Ishmael and she runs away because of the the tormenting of Sarah and she was in a pickle at that time and she finds herself in a place again and cries out to God and asks God what's going on she's vulnerable she's powerless she's the Egyptian the, the Gentile if you like the non-family the vulnerable the immigrant whatever you want to call her she's the one that had the most to lose she's the one that was the most vulnerable and she's the one that Abraham and seemingly God casts out and excommunicates so she cries out to God. You ever been in this position before? Why? Why God? Why me, God? Why can't I be chosen, God? Why do they get blessed, God? Where are you in my journey, God? Haven't I done enough, God? Haven't I been faithful enough, God? She cries out. Now my son's going to die. How is this Christianity? How is this following Jesus? How is this the Bible? You know, those moments we miss all the verses about griefing and denial and giving up our life. We're just thinking of all the verses of promises fulfilled and blessings and where is it, Lord God? Interestingly, God doesn't respond to Hagar's cry. He responds to the cry of Ishmael, verse 17. But God heard the boy crying and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven, Hagar, what's wrong? Don't be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Go to him and comfort him, for I will make him a great nation. What does Ishmael mean again? What does the name mean? God hears. God hears. God hears the cry of Ishmael, this young boy, 13-year-old, crying of hunger, crying of thirst. My father's just sent me away. My father won't look after me. 
Maybe you've felt this in your family. Maybe you've felt separation that's felt unfair. Maybe you've felt cried literal tears of pain. Maybe you've had to move away from family. Maybe because of Jesus, you were the black sheep in your family for a while, or you are the black sheep in your family right now. Maybe you've cried out in pain, like Ishmael, not knowing what's going on. Only 13, I'm naive. I don't know God. I don't get it. But God hears again, and he intervenes. And just like he said to Abraham, don't be upset about Ishmael going away. He says to Hagar, don't be upset about Ishmael either because I have a great promise and a great plan for your son. And now this is the powerful bit in verse 19. Then God opens Hagar's eyes to see and she sees a well. All of a sudden there's a well within viewing distance and it's full of water. And she quickly fills up her water container and gives the boy a drink. This is the power of the faith journey. When you stick the path, when you stay the journey, where you don't take your faith and take it away from God and his incredible faithfulness and give it to something else or give it to someone else, but you stick the journey, eventually, even though you may not have seen, you may not have understood, eventually God opens our eyes. Eventually salvation appears. Eventually breakthrough comes. And this is also a motif all the way through Genesis eyes being opened. Remember, um, the servant goes out from Jacob later on, uh, go, sorry, goes out from Isaac later on looking for a wife for Jacob. And the servant sees Rachel, sees Rachel, Jacob's wife, and knows that that's the one for her. Leah, Jacob's other wife, has weak eyes. She's known for being ugly, Leah was known for being ugly in the Bible. Rachel, the sister, was beautiful. Leah was ugly. It was because of her, her weak eyes. Joseph's brothers don't see him as the chosen ones. Even though he says to them, you're going to bow down to me one day. God is going to use me. I've had all these great dreams. Guess what? Guess what happens in family? No one cares about your dreams from God. No one cares about your great marks at school. No one cares about your athletic ability. Brothers and sisters are there to tear you down and to keep you humble. That's why God has given them to you, to form character in you. Everyone else might think you're special. Your brother thinks you're an idiot. Everyone else might think you're awesome. Your sister just thinks you're stuck up. All Joseph's, but none of them see him as anything special. They see him as such a loser that he's worthy to be sold into slavery in Egypt. They fake his death. They fake his funeral and send him away. Nobody sees him. But then Jesus comes, doesn't he? Jesus comes in the Gospels. And what does Jesus do? He opens blind eyes. Just like God with Hagar opened the eyes to see salvation, he opens blind eyes. He says things like, people will ever be hearing. People will ever be seeing, but never understanding. Those that have an ear to hear, Jesus says. Those that have an eye to see, Jesus says. There's something about being able to see when we trust God. We're able to see. Even in the crisis, we can see. Even when we're stuck in the desert with no water, when we're following Jesus, he gives us the ability to see his hands at work. That's what faith is, to see when you can't see, to know when nobody knows, to understand when you feel so confused because your faith and your trust is in God. What we see here is an incredible picture of how God works. God expels Ishmael. Now, if you think of him representing all the nations of the earth, all the non-Jewish people, all the nations, Egypt, the Gentiles, you and I, unless you're a Jewish Israelite person here, I don't think we have any Jewish people from Israel in the church at the moment. So all of us from other nations considered Gentiles, we all represent Ishmael. 
in this Abraham story. Abraham, his son, they are the chosen people of God. Every other nation, including Ishmael, is not chosen of God and is separated and excommunicated from the first family as God chooses Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the Israelite people, the nation of Israel, and eventually Jesus Christ comes from that people born in the line of Judah. God separates, however, in order to rejoin. God pulls things apart in order to bring things back together. So just like Ishmael is separated, but then God will look after him and he will have great promises and great blessing will come to Ishmael. So God separates the nations of the earth. He puts Israel aside as his chosen people so that he can bring all the nations of the earth back into relationship through Jesus Christ. That was the revelation in the early church, that Jesus didn't just come for Israel, he came for all nations. That was what we see in Acts chapter 2, when all the nations of the earth are there and the Holy Spirit is poured out on all people. And even for Peter and Paul and the early fathers of the faith and the disciples, they had to, they had to click. They didn't get it at first. They had to click that this isn't just a Jewish sect this Christianity or following Jesus, or the way as they called it, this is for all the nations of the earth. As we finish this morning, we're going to take communion together. I want to quickly turn this into something a little bit more practical. A little bit more practical. With our friends and family, we're going to run into these three C's. Okay, I've called them criticism, control, crisis. Every family and friendship struggles with their own little set of idols. So even Abraham, when God called Abraham out from his father, Terah, Terah, Abraham, his household, would have had their own set of idols, their own gods that they worship, probably made of wood, made of stone. And God calls Abraham, as we've heard in this story in Genesis 12, and he says, I'm going to, make, I'm going to give you a new idol it's going to be me, the creator of the universe, the God above all the gods. Not wood, not stone, invisible, nothingness. I'm just going to have a relationship, you and me. And out of you, Abraham, I'm going to start a family. That's Genesis. That's what Genesis is about. I'm going to start a nation. That's what the Old Testament is about. And I'm going to touch all nations of the earth. That's what the New Testament part of our Bible is about. But there's always the idols of the past in our life. There's the idols of the past in our family, mum, dad, because we learn from our family. Think how many years you spent under your parents' influence, 15, 20, 25 years, every day, every minute, they're drip, drip, dripping you, all their problems, all their insufficiencies. And with, even if you grew up in a Christian home, no parent was perfect, no parent was Jesus Christ, they've dripped to you their own insecurities, their own concerns, and that generally comes through criticism. That's how the unspoken rules of your family are usually communicated. This is how the rules of loyalty, you will be loyal to this family. You will not talk about our family's dirty laundry anywhere. And criticism usually helps keep you in line. You will be this kind of person. You'll marry this kind of person. You'll go on this kind of, you'll have this kind of job when you get older. Criticism pushes you, oppresses you, pressures you to live a certain way. If criticism doesn't work, then control comes at you. Manipulation, pressure comes at you. 
Essentially, it's like Ishmael with the mocking. You'll get mocked into line by your family. You'll get mocked into line by your friends. And the third C, crisis. Crisis is the way that often families work, friendship group works, friendship groups work. It's all about who's got the biggest problem. We get drawn into each other's problems. We live in each other's back pockets. You probably had that sibling, or maybe you were that sibling, or are that sibling. God forgive, there's a prayer line here at the end. Maybe that sibling who's always got a problem, and it just dominates the family. It dominates the friendship group. What they say, what they're going through, their problems, their issues, their struggles in life, they just take over everything. And crisis, like Ishmael and Isaac, Hagar and Sarah, there's always a crisis and a fight and a tension going on. Most families, these crises happen and not a lot of words are spoken. You have some families that are the anger families and the crisis is just everywhere and it's shouting and it's really nasty, but that's just us. No one really bats an eyelid at just how despicable the behavior is. Most families, it's pretty under the surface, unspoken, implied, tone, little text message, little talk, gossip over here, gossip over there. And that's how families and friendship groups generally control each other. Therefore, the journey of faith will continually require you to separate from unhealthy family and friends. Now, as I said at the beginning, I don't mean break relationship. I don't mean use the Bible to turn on your family. That is not the way of Jesus. But it will require separation from where there's unhealth. Because unhealth will make your relationship with Jesus unhealthy. You hang around people with sickness and disease, then it will infect your soul. It will infect your heart. It will affect your relationship with Jesus. You can't have a sister or a brother or a friend gossiping in your ear every day and expect to come to Jesus in the place of prayer and have this beautiful, pure heart. Remember Matthew 5, 8, the pure in heart will see God. I just pray and my heart is so pure and I just see you, God, and we relate. That doesn't happen when you've got gossip in your ear. It doesn't happen when you're getting involved in all the family controversies and trying to control a friend or control a sister or control a workmate. If you get sucked into all of that, it will poison your faith journey and it will greatly affect it. Therefore, separation will be required all the time. Guess who better to show us the way than Jesus himself? I've been reading through a book lately called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, and there's this great part in the book where Pete Scazzaro, the author, talks about how disappointing Jesus was. Jesus was super disappointing. And if you want to follow Jesus and you want to pass the separation test, you are going to have to embrace the pain that you are going to be disappointing to your friends, you're going to be disapproved of by your parents, you are going to not fulfill people's wishes very often. Jesus' disciples wanted him to be this political military leader that came in with this power and miracles and threw out the Romans and set up the kingdom of Israel again like David and Solomon in the days of old. Let's go back to the good old days and Jesus has got the power to do it. If you're the Messiah, let's take over. And he greatly disappointed his best friends and his followers, his closest mates that he hung around with for three years and he became the suffering servant who was crucified by the Romans that he was meant to overthrow, they crucified him on a cross and he was dead. He was a great disappointment. Remember his brothers? 
at the time of Passover. His own brothers say to Jesus, let's go down to the Passover and into Jerusalem. Because anyone, they literally, this is what they say to him, anyone who wants to be famous should make themselves known. Because these brothers weren't stupid. They're like, man, these miracles are going to make us some money. Man, these, I was there when the water was changed to wine. Like, let's go get famous. Let's set up that Instagram account right now and start putting these miracles out there. Like, we, this is going to happen. That's the pressure we have, isn't it? From friends, family, culture. Be famous. Take the opportunity. Start the business. Take the money. Take the job. It's all this pressure on us. And Jesus greatly disappointed his family, his brothers, his mother. And he refused. No, I'm not. This is not the right time, he says. See, Jesus was looking at here. My timing comes from here, not from my family, my friends, and these other ones. He was greatly disappointed, greatly disappointed the crowds. Jesus healed the crowds, preached to the crowds, inspired the crowds, but he was a constant disappointment to them as he would, he would duck away to pray. He would leave the crowds when he was overwhelmed. And he had, remember, he was a human. When he was emotionally, mentally worn out at the end of the day, he would move away from the crowds. He would duck away. He wouldn't just do what they wanted all the time. They just wanted to use him and abuse him, take miracles, take blessings, take, well, you can turn uh, you know, bread and fish into food for 5,000. Let's see that every day. But Jesus wasn't going to placate the crowds. Jesus wasn't going to play to the choir. Jesus wasn't going to be told what to do. So he greatly disappointed the crowds, who in the end were like, man, the miracles were great, but hey, everyone's saying, crucify him, crucify him. Okay, crucify him. The crowds are fickle. They change in a moment, black and white. One day they love you, the next day they hate you. And Jesus knew the hearts of men. He knew the crowds weren't where he should seek his approval from. So he didn't come under their control. He didn't come under their criticism. Jesus' own mother and brother at one point came to him and he was inside talking, ministering to people. And they said to Jesus, oh, your, your mum and your brothers are outside. They're, they're asking for you. Obviously, you know, your mum's here. Pretty important, especially in that culture 2,000 years ago. Honoring parents was incredibly important. Whatever mum and dad asked to do, whatever mum and dad implied you should do, whatever mum and dad you know would want you to do, that was done. So Jesus, very out of context for a Jewish boy, says, who is my mother? That's just for a response. Who is my mother? Who is my brother? And he looks around at the people in the room and says, you're my mother. You're my brother. You're my sister. Whoever does the will of God is my family. How's that for being separated from your family in a healthy way? The ability to go, you, if you want to walk with me and do the will of God in this faith journey, then you're my family. I love my mother and my brother, but... I'm not going to give in to their whims, their will, their expectation. If you choose the fourth C there, Christ, crisis will come at you, control will come at you, criticism will come at you from your family, your friends, from your own self-talk, it will come at you. But if you give in to those things, you'll lose on the faith journey. You'll lose track of where you're going. God has called you to be separate. This week, I want to encourage you, read through the scripture again, Genesis 21, 1 to 21. You might want to read Galatians as well, which takes the idea of get rid of the slave woman even further. Maybe read a commentary alongside Galatians because it's a pretty full-on, bitey 10 verses there. And I really want to encourage you to pray and to contemplate. 
Is my faith journey separate from the negative effects of my friends and family? Are you on your faith journey with you and God, or is there a whole bunch of other people's voices on there and in there? Do you come to God and pray and he talks clean into your heart and your heart is open to obeying his will? Or is there family of origin stuff, background stuff, friendships that you've got to keep happy, people that you're trying to impress because you want their approval? Is that all in your prayer time as well? You know, when you stand in front of God at the end of your life, he's not going to ask you about your friends and your family. He's not going to ask you about your workplace. He's not going to ask you about your bank account. He's not going to ask you about how unfair your life was and how hard it was for you and how special your problems were. He's not going to ask you about that stuff. He's going to ask you, did you obey what I asked you to do? I put you on the earth for a purpose and a reason. How'd you go with that? That's what he's going to ask you. You can talk about friends. You can talk about, oh, but my kids. Oh, but I'm a grandparent. Oh, but like you don't understand. Oh, but my friends, you know, I'm not that kind of person. I find conflict hard. God's not going to be there worrying about those things. That's why he's so interested in forming you in your character now to deal with all the junk of life. It's hard. I know it's hard. He's going to ask you, how'd you go with this faith journey? How'd you go obeying me, loving me, trusting me, walking the path I set for you?